So it has been a while since I've been up here. It's been over a year since I've been had the privilege of preaching. So thanks to Jay that he let me do it again. And for some of you that are newer, you're like, Dana Clifford who? Which is totally okay. You don't need to know who I am. But uh, I just uh, love being able to be with you this morning. And, um, you know, this is Memorial Day weekend. And so most of us are thinking about, well, if the weather was a little bit warmer than it is right now, we would be thinking about barbecues and swimming and all kinds of things tomorrow. But I do want to take just a moment and pause and remind ourselves of what Memorial Day is all about for those who have given their lives for our freedoms in this country. And so we're just going to take a moment and pause. I'll give you a moment to just be appreciative, and then I will close this in prayer as we remember those, not only those who personally have lost their lives, but those family members, the loved ones that are missing them because they are not here and they've given their, in their life and service for us. So let's just pause for a moment. Lord, we do come before you and we thank you for those in the military who have given their lives for the freedoms that we have even to sit in this room today and in all kinds of ways the the freedoms and the joy that we have because they were willing to serve we pray for their families we thank you and want to honor them today and as we move from this moment as we open up your word and we look at Matthew chapter 11 we do just ask that you would open our hearts and minds to anything that you want to say to us today the things that you as your spirit has already been moving in this room always going before us moving in of us that your spirit would just be we would be open to whatever it is that you want to do in our lives today we thank you for the privilege that we have to come together because of Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. So we are going to continue on in Matthew, in the series of Matthew. And we'll be in chapter 11 today. Last week, Jay talked about the big picture of Jesus and what Jesus came to do. It says that um, he was traveling through all towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, which were their churches, so much like we have today, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. This was the central mission of Jesus, that he came. He came to be, Jesus, uh, Jay talked about being our shepherd, which was like the victor. And we're going to continue to see what that looked like, but we'll see today that some people were confused they were, um, their, their expectations of what this Messiah, this Jesus would do for them were, were not exactly um, what they were thought. And so they were doubting what he, would, he was doing. And so we're going to look at Matthew chapter 11. Before I do that, I'd like you to think, honestly, I need to... I'm just going to slow down here. I'm, I'm nervous being up today. It's been a while. So I'm just going to let you know that right away. 
And I'm going to take a deep breath, and then I'm going to get focus in on the Lord. So if you would do that with me, then we'll all be okay. But I want you to think for a moment about something that, you're, that didn't meet your expectations. So it could be something as simple as some of you bought it online and it wasn't exactly what you thought, like a picture here, like, oh, wait, that's not really what I was expecting. Or, I mean, how many of you have done something like that? You bought it and you got it and you're like, it's too big, it's too large. Here's another picture of you thought you were going to get a beautiful bouquet and instead you got the stems. I mean, really, what is that? But it might be something that's a little bit more serious than that. Maybe it's a relationship that the expectations that you had for that relationship really didn't come about. Or a job and you got the job description, and you're like, yes, this is my perfect job. And then it wasn't quite so perfect as they usually aren't. One of my experiences is when I was really young. Uh, I don't remember a lot of Christmas presents that I received. I just don't, that's not in my memories, but I do remember one. I was probably five or six. I remember the house that we lived in. It was in Oklahoma when I got the, this present. I had been wanting a bicycle. And so on Christmas morning, my siblings and I sneak in, as all kids do, to see, okay, what presents have I gotten? And the parents aren't around, but I saw a bicycle across the room. And I ran over to it. It was blue, just like I wanted. I ran over to it. But then, as I began to inspect it, I realized, wait, this isn't really what I was expecting. This, as a five-year-old, a six-year-old, I could tell this was not a brand-new bicycle. It was a bicycle that had been purchased, I think it was even from someone in our neighborhood. I think I remember seeing the bike somewhere else. And my dad had taken lovingly, probably sanded it down and repainted it. And I, But I remember the disappointment I had because this was not a new bike. I can, in my mind, I remember exactly the color it was. I don't know how I reacted. I don't, probably didn't cry or scream or throw a fit. That's just not really what I do. But I know that I still remember that present, and I still remember those emotions, those emotions of disappointment. They are still within me. And so sometimes it's not the things of joy that we remember as much as the things of our expectations don't fit reality. And when they don't match up and we've been expecting something to be really good, then we react in a different way than, than we would want. So we're going to look at John chapter, I mean Matthew chapter 11. We'll look at John in Matthew chapter 11. When John the Baptist didn't, um, he had some expectations. And they really didn't measure up. And this is what it says at the beginning of Matthew chapter 11. It says, after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. 
the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. So just a little background about this. John the Baptist is in prison. Tells us a little bit later on in Matthew how that happened. But it says, Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John. But he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. The people loved John and considered him a prophet. But he was speaking out against the ruler in that, at that time, Herod, saying, you've got your brother's wife. I don't, that's not right. And so Herod put him in prison. So at this time, John is in prison. He could have been in prison as much as a year at this time. But he hears about the Messiah the Messiah, the Savior, the one that had been, they had been waiting, the Jewish nation had been waiting for years and years and years and years for the Messiah to come, the Christ. See, oftentimes we think of Jesus Christ as his full name, but that's not it. Christ is a title, a title that those who heard it would know that this, they're talking about the one who's come to save us. It'd be kind of like if we said the president, we would know what his job is and what he's supposed to do. Well, this, they, all the people around the, the Jewish nation, they knew what the Messiah was supposed to do. And when John heard this, he said, okay, he's got follow, people following him. He sent his disciples, ones who were probably helping take care of him while he was in prison. And he says, ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Are you him? Are you the Messiah? Seems like an okay question to ask. But if you'll remember, this is John the Baptist who came before Jesus. In the, the book of John, not written by John the Baptist, but written by John, one of the apostles, the son of Zebedee, confusing with all these Johns. But in the first chapter... This is what is said about John the Baptist. Now, this is a little longer passage, so stick with me because I think it's a really important thing for us to see of why this question that John is asking is one that's really confusing. It says in John chapter 1, Now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but to confess freely. I am not the Messiah. John's like, I'm not him. I'm not the one. They ask him, then who are you? Are you, the, are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. All of these things are from the Old Testament. Things, people that, that would, they would have been looking for as the Messiah comes along. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. That's me. That's my purpose. That's what I'm here for. Now the Pharisees who had 
been sent question him, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened in Bethany, at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit, that Holy Spirit we just sang about and talked about. I ta John says this, I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Are you the one to come or should we wait for someone else? Wow, that's pretty confusing, isn't it? John said, I've seen and I testify, this is God's chosen one. So why now is he asking his disciples to go and say, hey, Jesus, are you the one? He's known. He's given testimony of it. He saw the spirit come down from heaven and land on Jesus. So what is different now? The difference is, that his circumstances have changed. He's in prison. He's not out by the river baptizing others and preparing the way for the Messiah. He's been in prison maybe as much as a year, and he's like, wait a minute. This is not really what I expected. My expectations were something very different than this. See, John, even John the Baptist, still doubts when his circumstances don't look exactly like he thinks that they should look. He's confused. He's searching for reassurance. I mean, he's sure that this is the Messiah until he's not sure. And then he doubts. John doubts, just like I doubt at times when my circumstances don't measure up to what I think Jesus will do for me. Sometimes I think there's things he should be doing in the world that are not happening. Not just personally me, for me, but others around. There's still a lot of sickness out there, isn't there? There's still a lot of tears that are cried. And there's verses that say there will be no more sickness and no more tears. And what happens when that's what my experience is instead? Sometimes I doubt. Well, I don't know, Jesus, maybe you're just not who I think you are. And I believe 
that there are many in this room that do the same thing. You doubt. You doubt at times when what you believe Jesus is supposed to do for you doesn't measure up to what your expectations are and what happens. So when difficulty comes, John questions. But what I want to tell you is that doubt is actually a natural part of faith and believing. It's just a part. Doubt creeps in, but that's also natural because it is about faith. And faith is not something that I can test in a test tube. It always has an element of doubt. John, Tim Keller, who we um, often quote around here, and he actually uh, just lost his battle with cancer and died just a little over a week ago. But he says this, a faith without some doubts is like a human body with no antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask the hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she fails over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should be should only be discarded after long reflection. He actually says it's a good thing when we question and have those doubts, but then we seek into it and really try to find the answers and look for the truth in the midst of those. And, and, then, and then discard them when we see what the truth really is. John Ortberg says it this way. Having faith does not mean never, mean never having doubts or questions. It does mean remaining obedient. Remaining obedient, not never having doubts or questions. See, faith in Jesus is not about not having any doubts, but it's more about what we do with our doubts. It's when we have the doubts, what do we do with them? So what did John do? John actually took them right to Jesus. Are you the one who is to come or should we wait for somebody else? He sent his disciples directly to the source to say, who are you? Are you the Messiah? And when he did this, Jesus replied back to him this, go and report to John what you hear and see. Blind receive sight, lame walk, lepers are cleansed, deaf hear, dead are raised, good news proclaimed to the poor. All of those things are exactly what the Old Testament said about the Messiah. This is what the Messiah will do. He will do all of these things. There's all different kinds of ways where it's sprinkled out. A lot of those verses come from Isaiah. There's Isaiah 35, Isaiah 61. In Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, this is what it says. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from the darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God. Hmm, could be why John was doubting. 
He's in prison, and he knows these verses, and he says, wait, wait, where's the freedom for the captives? Where's the release from darkness for the prisoners? Where's the vengeance? I mean, Herod is still living his life out here with his brother's wife, and I'm sitting in prison. Is this, isn't the Messiah supposed to do something different than this? Yeah, I mean, the verses are right there, so you can see maybe why he doubts. John knows that the Messiah is supposed to come with the blessings and the healings and all of that, but also there's a, a sense of, of restoration for the nation of Israel and freedom from the captives, the, the slavery that they're under in the Roman nation at the time. There's all kinds of things in there that Jesus seems to be doing one part, but not the other part. And so John has questions. And when John's disciples come to Jesus, Jesus says, go back to John and tell him these are all things that are happening. But you see, he left out those parts about releasing the prisoners, didn't he? He didn't promise John that he would be released because he wasn't. He was beheaded. But he said, tell John not to stumble on account of me. Because of your expectations of what it's going to look like, don't stumble because I don't look exactly like what you think I should look like. He instead calls him to a, a life of perseverance, a life of continued obedience as John has had. I find it interesting that Jesus also didn't do what he has done to some others. He didn't say, oh, you of little faith, like he had some of the, the disciples when they would be like, see a miracle, and then they, like, Jesus, why aren't you doing this too? No, instead of any kind of rebuke or anything like that, after John's disciples leave, he begins to praise John. He begins to say that he is the one that is, is coming before me to prepare the way. He says in verse 11, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not been risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. He says, this guy, he's a powerhouse. And he's doing what he's supposed to do. But what Jesus does do, if you'll read a little bit later in, in Matthew 11, he does begin to rebuke some. He begins to rebuke the towns of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And these are the cities all around Gal Galilee. If you'll remember at the beginning, he's traveling all around Galilee. He's doing all these kinds of miracles and all these things that he's, you know, the blind receive sight and so forth. And the people in these towns, towns don't believe or not believe, but the people in these towns were not believing in Jesus. They were not, they were unrepentant. They were rejecting him. They were saying they wanted something different too. Their expectations of what, the G, of what the Messiah would look like was not Jesus at all, especially because he grew up in that area. And they're like, that's Jesus. His, his mom's Mary. Come on, he can't be the Messiah. But those people had no faith instead of John's faith that just was mixed with some doubts. See, throughout the Old Testament in the, and in the words of Jesus and in the New Testament and Revelation, there will be a time 
when there is a day of vengeance. There will be a time when there is a judgment for those that see Jesus and then don't believe. But that's not this time. Jesus has come to be a victor over sin and death. But there's going to be a second coming. And John didn't understand that. And most of anybody else around that time didn't understand it. And John had not actually seen that come about yet. And so he had these doubts. So I just want to ask you, what... What are some of your expectations of God? What are some of the things that would cause you to think, hmm, you're not doing what you're supposed to do? World peace, personal happiness, success, freedom from tough things. Maybe we wouldn't verbalize it out loud, but when those things don't come or do come, we begin to doubt. We begin to have um, just a sense that Jesus should be some other kind of God. See, Jesus wants no one to stumble because of him. Not John the Baptist, not these towns that saw him and expected something different, not me, not you. He doesn't want to stumble because he doesn't look exactly like we think he should. But Jesus does want to extend an invitation to all of us. In the end of chapter 11 of Matthew are some words that you probably are pretty familiar with. Even if you're not much of a churchgoer, you've probably heard these words. But this is an in the invitation that Jesus gives to all. He says in Matthew 28, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Just come to me. I'm going to give you rest. Jay actually talked about this rest in a sermon on, on the Sabbath. Uh, on April 23rd. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on what that rest looks like, but I would encourage you to go back and listen to that message if, if, if you feel like, yeah, I need that kind of rest. But I do want to look at some of it. And the part I want to look a little bit at is this yoke thing. I mean, here's a picture of a yoke. I don't know about you. Light, easy, Rest, that doesn't look very restful to me. Doesn't look very light. See, it feels burdensome. Here's some, some cows. I guess those are cows, oxen, whatever. With, um, they don't have long horns, so I don't know what they are. Sorry about that. But uh, they're under this uh, yoke here, and they're like, oh, it looks like they're going to have to do some work, doesn't it? I mean, that's what that's for, right? So what does this yoke mean? Um, seems burdensome to me sometimes. So I'm a rule follower. And um, when I was in my late teens, early 20s, I would read these verses in Matthew 28. I mean, Matthew 11, 28 through 30. And I would think, liar! 
I mean, really in my spirit, there was a sense that this can't be true because I feel burdened down by the, the things that Jesus asked me to do. I mean, if you read through the Old Testament, there's a whole lot of things. All you have to do is go a little bit earlier in Matthew and we've got the Sermon on the Mount. And there seems to be a, like a lot of things that don't seem very easy to do. And not that I would have ever done this because... I'm a real follower and you don't do it. But if I could have, I would have taken like those old X-Acto knives. You know what I'm talking about? Now we could just do it on our computers. But I didn't have it back then. I would have taken one of those little X-Acto knives and I would have cut those verses right out of my Bible. And I would have thrown them away because they did not feel to me like the truth. I had a lot of expectations what things that would be light and easy would look like. And that didn't feel like it. It felt burdensome. When you research a yoke, you actually find that for animals, that the purpose is to spread out the burden. So it's lighter, right? So you've got two to carry the burden, maybe just not one. You're yoked together. I, there is a 15-plus page paper on the Internet if you want to read it about yokes. Pretty crazy, but it's there. It joins the animals together so they're not alone in carrying the burden. It also allows the animals to be guided more easily to go in the right direction when they're doing their work. In the day of Jesus, you wouldn't have had to look around for pictures because they would have been all over the place. People would have seen it. When they've said a yoke, he would, they would have understood what he meant as far as that for um, work and animals of burden that were doing work, but it's also a picture of rabbi's teachings too. So Jesus says, no, no, I'm gentle and humble. I'm not a heavy taskmaster. His yoke is easy. Easy meaning good fitting where it fits you right. So it's not shoes that don't feel, fit well and rub blisters, but no, it's a, a, a good fitting thing. It doesn't mean it's simple. Following after him is not simple. But it can be easy and light when we're being guided by him. This is a quote from John Mark Comer's book, The Re uh, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And it's a longer quote where he's quoting someone else too. But again, I think it's really important for us to, to, to see what this yoke is about. He says, Frederick Del Berner, Bruner is a top scholar on the Gospel of Matthew, and his insight into the paradox of an easy yoke is worth reading. A yoke is a work instrument. Thus, when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers what we might think tired workers need least. They need a mattress, a vacation, not a yoke. They need a new series that they want to watch so they can zone out, something like that. But Jesus realizes that the most restful gift he can give the tired is a new way to carry life, a fresh way to bear responsibilities. Realism sees that life is a succession of burdens. We cannot get away from them. Thus, instead of offering escape, Jesus offers equipment. Jesus means that obedience to his yoke 
will develop us in, in us a balance and a way of carrying life that will give more rest than the way we have been living. That's why Jesus doesn't offer us an escape. He offers us something far better, equipment. He offers his apprentices a whole new way to bear the weight of our humanity with ease. At his side, at his side, like two oxen in a field tied shoulder to shoulder with Jesus doing all the heavy lifting at his pace, slow, unhurried, present to the moment, full of love and joy and peace. An easy life isn't an option. None of us have an easy life. That's not reality. When we have an expectation of an easy life, we get it all wrong. An easy life isn't an option. An easy yoke is. It's not a life without hardships. It's not a life without pain. It's not a life even without doubts. But what he does do is he wants us to bring it all to him. Over the years, Jesus has actually taught me that I want to keep those verses in my Bible where it says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Resting in him is actually the way that I want to do life. Maybe you struggle to be yoked to him. Maybe you're not sure what this looks like or how to do it or how to bring your doubts to him or anything like that. I just want to encourage you, you might want to try out and look at our, our new uh, ministry in mentorship. I get to partner with some people here at Westgate that just want to walk alongside of you, maybe meet a couple, two or three, four times with you to say, this is what life with Jesus looks like. They don't have it all together. They're just maybe a little further along than you. You could just check it out on our website uh, through this uh, QR code and just see what it's like. Just check it out if you want. I encourage you to do that. But as we close... I want to circle back to John the Baptist, sitting in prison with his expectations. His expectations that, hmm, I didn't think I'd be in prison. I thought that those prisoners were going to be set free. Jesus, you don't seem to be doing what the Messiah should be doing. And then he says, Jesus, are you the one who is to come? And Jesus says, John, come to me. Come to me with all your doubts, all your expectations, all the things that you don't like in life. Come to me. And we'll work it out together. Many of you are sitting here and you're weary and you're burdened. Life with God or life without God is not ending up the way you expected you're aware from your jobs or your relationships, your financial stresses, news, what's happening all around the world. You think there is a God. He's either not very powerful 
or he's not very kind because our expectations are different. And what Jesus wants to say to you is to bring all of those false expectations of, of God to him. An easy life isn't an option. An easy yoke is. Jesus says to you, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me. Jesus, we want, sometimes we want to come to you. Sometimes we're not sure. But we want to. We want to want to. And so I just pray for myself and those in the room, those who are watching online or the theater, that you would continue to call us that you would continue to give us the reassurance that we need, that you have something different for us. That our expectations of what light and easy look like are not the truth, but what you give us is what we need. And we desire that. And we pray in your precious and holy name. Amen.